This podcast may contain mature content, strong language and spoilers. Hello and welcome to episode 58 of the HD Movie Podcast. I'm Darren Gaskell. And I'm Hayley Alice-Roberts. And in this episode, we continue our look at the Die Hard franchise. We're exactly halfway through now. We're to the third movie. It's Die Hard with a Vengeance. After the first set of diehard shenanigans in LA and the second one set in Washington, we're now in New York for the third instalment, Die Hard with a Vengeance, which was released in 1995 and has John McTiernan back as the director. So what is Die Hard with a Vengeance about? What's in store this time around? Well, Murray Chapman on IMDb is going to tell us in his short but very well-written synopsis. A man calling himself Simon begins a reign of terror in the streets of New York. He threatens to detonate bombs around the city unless Detective John McClane cooperates in a game of Simon Says. McClane has a bad hangover and a bad attitude and isn't in the mood for games, especially this one. Yeah, pretty good synopsis, that. Short, to the point, doesn't really give anything away. What this one does have is very little build-up. It's straight into the action. You get... A few shots of New York to establish the location. And then within seconds, you've got an explosion and McLean's thrown into the action pretty much from minute one. Now, I remember going to see this in the summer of 95 and I went to see it in Blackpool. There's a big audience or there was a big audience cinema in Blackpool. And I remember going one Saturday afternoon to see this and... It brought back a few memories for me, this, uh, of both the location and the movie. It's a slightly different take on Die Hard, this one, because it opens the playing field out to the whole of Manhattan, which is quite entertaining. So you don't get the closed-in atmosphere of the first one or the sort of slightly wider reach of the airport in the second one. This could go anywhere and anything could happen in this one, which is a good premise for the third Die Hard movie. You couldn't really have them contained again in the third one. So it's a pretty cool idea for a third movie. And as we'll get to, McLean has a sidekick in this movie as well. He sure does. I agree with you. I think this one felt a lot fresher. It was taking a new trajectory, but it was still very much diehard in its ethos through and through. I really enjoyed this. I think it would have been boring if it had retreaded some of the same elements of the previous two, as you say, being like in that claustrophobic atmosphere. So this film was released five years after Die Hard 2, and the reason for this was it was stuck in development hell for quite a while. Bruce Willis himself had rejected several screenplays as he felt they were um, retreads of similar action movies of the era because Die Hard had kind of basically dropped the bomb for a plethora of 
amazing action films, some copycats. Um, I think one that we've covered on here is Speed. That's very much Die Hard on a bus. So yeah. there was a lot of that going on. And speaking of speed, we'll get to that in a moment. The original idea for a third Die Hard film was to be set on a cruise ship. However, at the time, they felt it was too similar to a Steven Seagal 1992 film called Under Siege. So the idea that was originally created for uh, the third Die Hard ended up becoming Speed 2 Cruise Control in 1997. So I thought that was quite an interesting fact. I'm glad that it didn't take the cruise ship route because I really like what they did with this one. And of course, as you said, there is a sidekick in this and that is a character named Zeus Carver played by the incredible one and only Samuel L. Jackson. And I think the dynamic between Bruce Willis and Samuel L. Jackson in this film is brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. They do make the movie, even when the pace flags a little bit, it's the relationship between the two characters that carries it through. And Samuel L. Jackson is his crotchety best. He doesn't really want to be involved from the start. He does rescue Bruce Willis from the original pickle that he's put in by Simon. But as the movie goes on, he's a very reluctant hero. He ends up coming through, but he really doesn't want to be there. Now, does Samuel L. Jackson drop the motherfucker bomb? Yes, he does in this movie. Surprise, surprise. He does it a few times, but we want him to say that. It's not a Samuel L. Jackson movie. Well, it's certainly not an R-rated Samuel L. Jackson movie, unless he uses the word motherfucker copiously. And he does in this movie, which is nice to see. Yeah, and of course, this was a year after the two actors starred together in Quentin Tarantino's Pulp Fiction. Yes, yes, there is a line in this that refers back to one of the sequences in Pulp Fiction. There's a bit in Pulp Fiction where Bruce Willis is in a car and there's something on the radio and it's flowers on the wall. And one of the lines in flowers on the wall is smoking cigarettes and watching Captain Kangaroo which is the line that McLean says at one point when somebody's asking him what he's doing. So that's a little bit of a nod back to Pulp Fiction for anybody that recognises the line or thinks, hang on a minute, I've heard that before. Yeah, it's from one of the songs that uh, plays over the radio in Pulp Fiction. Yeah, so very uh, clever reference there. But Samuel Jackson wasn't originally up for the part of Zeus. It was actually Lawrence Fishburne that was offered the role. So I'm going to just refer to the trusty Wikipedia just for this section of the podcast, just to explain what happened here. So Lawrence Fishburne was originally offered the co-starring role of Zeus Carver, a part written for him, but he wanted a higher fee. The producer held out on the deal and Fishburne had earlier turned down the role of Jules Winfield in Pulp Fiction, which of course went to Samuel Jackson. Fishburne was talked out of playing Jules by his representatives who wanted him to only accept leading parts, otherwise he would be stuck career-wise as a supporting actor. Pulp Fiction had premiered in Cannes the same time as Lawrence Fishburne's pay negotiations, and basically he didn't end up getting the role because of Samuel Jackson then being kind of chosen by Bruce Willis after working together. And then Fishburne did actually file a lawsuit against the uh, the production company and it took two years and then he eventually received the settlement. So that's kind of the backstory there in the nutshell about what happened and uh, why he didn't get the part. I wonder if Lawrence Fishburne fired his agent after that because he told him not to play Jules Winfield in Pulp Fiction, which is an iconic character. And then he wanted him to hold out for more money for Die Hard with Avengers and they didn't get the part. I mean, he obviously got the money in the end, but 
these are two roles that people remember. I mean, Lawrence Fishburne, I think, would have been pretty good in this. I think it'd have been slightly more measured than Samuel L. Jackson. I, I think Samuel L. Jackson, you're waiting for him to have that moment where he just explodes, and he does several times in this movie. But I think Lawrence Fishburne would have been pretty good in this. It would have been a slightly different movie. I think the dynamic would have been a bit more low-key, I think. But we've got Samuel L. Jackson, so that's fine. It was a really inspired piece of casting. Big up to Bruce Willis for suggesting him and wanting him to play opposite him because they do spark off each other really well. There's lots and lots of really well-scripted and possibly ad-libbed banter between the two of them throughout the movie. And whatever happens, he's just got to answer that fucking phone. Yes. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so going into the villain of the piece now, there is a character, he's a bit mysterious to begin with. We just hear his voice on the phone, and for fans of The Lion King, you might recognise his voice. It is, of course, Jeremy Irons plays Simon. Spoiler alert, turns out he has a very personal connection to McLean and why he is basically playing this intense cat and mouse game with him and Zeus throughout the movie and the reason for that is his surname is Gruber so he is the brother of the original villain from the first I Hard, Hans Gruber. I really liked the whole aspect of the phone calls and the kind of like chase sequences and just kind of kind of speeding around New York trying to figure the next thing out and everything it's it's it, it was just really kind of edgy you see stuff and it as i say it changed the dynamic from the first two where anything could happen anywhere and they're rushing around and he's playing games with them and telling them that something might happen somewhere but then it doesn't and they've gone in the wrong direction like he's used it as a scapegoat to what's actually happening so you know you've got that and you're just hoping that mclean's going to figure this out before it's too late yeah, the villain in this is a really strong villain. I don't think he is Hans Gruber. I think he's a tough one to beat, but I think he comes pretty close. He's quite a good villain in this. Yeah, nobody beats Hans Gruber. It's the best villain performance of all time. Nobody is going to top Alan Rickman in Die Hard as a villain. But Jeremy Irons is a pretty close second. He's He does pretty well, and he doesn't want to try and, again, retread what Hans Gruber is doing. He's his own character. And even though he's the brother of Hans, then he has to bring his own personality to the table. And Jeremy Hans' voice is quite menacing. It's quite it's quite soothing, but it's also quite menacing at the same time. And if you identify with his voice, you can. If you, Even if you didn't know Jeremy Hans was in this, you would know it was his voice on the phone at the start. You don't actually see him until about three quarters of an hour into the movie when he's on a rooftop. But then... Yeah, 15 minutes in. Right, okay. And so, the yeah. longest before they've ever revealed villain in the Die Hard franchise. Yeah, and then after that, you get to see him quite regularly. And he's surrounded by less memorable supporting villains than the first. They do seem slightly more disposable this time around because the action really is more centering on McLean and Zeus as they're running around the city. There is a fairly cool female villain played by sam phillips who doesn't really get she i don't think she gets any lines in the movie she just silently disposes of people so the biggest badass in simon gruber's crew is the woman by a long shot i mean there's one point where she attacks somebody with this uh, blade and she just disposes of this security guard stroke cop 
in a really horrible way. And then uh, I think she was just going to sort of continue slashing this guy. And then Simon says something like, oh, I think he's dead now. Yeah, <laughs> that's a great moment. Sam Phillips was cast just based on a photo from one of her album covers. So she's a musician. And she did actually, I think, co-write the theme for Gilmore Girls. <laughs> so that, that's kind of cool that you've got this badass like diehard villain and her characters mute throughout i think that that in a way is my only criticism that she's silent because i think nowadays you wouldn't get away with that when you want to make roles for women more prominent and a lot more meaty so yeah i, I don't know i don't really i think she should have had some dialogue at least so we could have like learned a bit more about her i was waiting and, for her to have one line at the end maybe it didn't happen because I thought, you know, they, they're keeping her quiet for the entire movie. At the end, when she suddenly finds that she might be about to die or something, is she going to say something? But they don't do that, which is, you know, it's a decision. But you're right. I think uh, you don't get to find out too much about her other than the fact that she's incredibly lethal and that uh, yeah. anybody anybody around her doesn't usually last very long. But that's all you find out. But she is kind of a striking villain. And it's quite interesting that that she was just cast on the strength of a photograph. She is really effective, although she's got no dialogue at all. She's got a lot of presence, which works. She's a lot more memorable than some of the other villains. They've got a villain called Carl, which I don't know if it's a nod to the first one. There's another Carl in the group. The main heavy, he's all right. He's kind of cast because he's kind of a hulk in appearance and stuff, and there is a fight with him. But the... The baddies in this, apart from Simon and I think she's is she called Katya? I think it's Katya. Katya yeah. yeah. They all seem a bit second division. They're all there to just be a bit, well, cannon fodder, really, in the second half. Because there's not a lot of death in the first half of this. And, you know, most of it is solving riddles and running around Manhattan. There are a couple of shootouts in the second half of the movie as things amp up and McLean starts to piece together what's going on. But anybody who's expecting shootouts all the way and explosions and that sort of stuff they're fairly carefully rationed throughout this movie although when something does blow up or when there's a big shootout you know they really do go for it because it's kind of like right okay we've left it for this long let's just do something utterly ridiculous in this movie which is one of the other things it's slightly more heightened than the other movies and it's kind of on this upward trajectory die hard 2 is had kind of taken the first one and had had made it slightly more ridiculous in some of its action sequences. This, some of the stuff they do in this, you have to suspend disbelief and then some. But it's entertaining, it doesn't matter. You know, it's not a forensically accurate action movie, it's never going to be that. So you've got McLean and Zeus abseiling down onto boats, and then you've got McLean being blown out of a blowhole from an aqueduct and going in the air so and and they kind of walk away from it without a scratch on it and it's that kind of movie you know you don't go into something called die hard with a vengeance expecting gritty realism because you're not going to get it to be perfectly honest no and i think those scenes are particularly like crowd pieces but the film does have that psychological thriller element with the whole simon says game which i really liked about it because you're going along with them trying to solve puzzles and i just really love that aspect but going back to that, this is actually the first Die Hard movie that wasn't based on a novel. So um, as we've said in previous episodes, the original was based on Nothing Lasts Forever by Roderick Thorpe. And then the sequel was based on 58 Minutes by Walter Wager. But this one was actually based on a script um, titled Simon Says by Jonathan Hensley, who 
is the writer for this film and he also went on to write Armageddon and The Punisher to name a few so um, that's quite interesting and I think the script kind of went around I think it went to Warner Brothers first and it was going to be a lethal weapon film at one stage as well before it became Die Hard so it's, it's got quite a fascinating backstory with how all these different pieces ended up moulding into this third Die Hard film because they could have been other things like we had the whole cruise idea and then lethal weapon so that's quite um interesting i like the fact that it could have been a lethal weapon movie because yeah you see the dynamic between the two main characters and you kind of think could be riggs and murto they could have done this it's probably slightly i'm not going to say elevator because that seems i'm down on the lethal weapon movies and i'm not at all but i think it's it's more cunning than the lethal weapon movies i think the lethal weapon movies are generally the solution to everything in those movies is to shoot as many people as possible when there's nothing wrong with shooting as many people as possible as long as it's on film but this there's a little bit more thought goes into it for a diehard movie it's probably the most cerebral one i'm not saying that it is an arts house classic because it isn't but you know it relies a little bit more on the characters sitting back and having a think about it whereas the other two McLean's actions are very much on the hoof and it's instinctive but in this one he's got somebody to bounce ideas off and the riddles are quite entertaining they're fairly classic riddles I think you'll have heard some of them before maybe but they're always fun and the fact that as you said before solving the riddle it may stop something happening it may not the thing that they were trying to stop may not ever have happened at all and it's that element of suspense as well, which makes it doubly entertaining. As a third movie in a franchise, the quality here is pretty high because I can't think of many other third movies in franchises. Well, I'm thinking Nightmare on Elm Street 3, which is pretty good. But by the third one, a lot of things are running out of steam. And basically, when you get to the third installment of a franchise, well... I'm thinking, oh God, not another one. But with this one, I can remember being quite excited about it when it was about to come out. And having watched it again at various points over the years and having watched it very, very recently for this podcast, I'm still a pretty big fan of this movie. I'm not sure whether I like two or three more. I think I'll have to take another few weeks while we're going through the rest of the franchise because the one thing I think... Uh, not lets it down, but I think the final confrontation seems like a little bit of an afterthought because they go to f- track Simon down and instead of a big face-off, you get kind of an almost apologetic helicopter shootout across this parking lot at the border and you don't really get that face-to-face confrontation between Simon and McLean that you kind of want after having gone through two hours of this. So. If there's anything that I feel slightly disappointed at, and I probably felt disappointed on the first viewing as well, and I don't think I've got over it, is that the end, they kind of deal with the bad guy in a fairly perfunctory way. Even though it's spectacular, you don't get that punch from McLean facing off with Hans Gruber or McLean facing off on the wing of the aircraft, something like that. It seems very very distant this one which is you know it's fine you know I I guess they didn't want to do something that was the same as the other two movies but it just felt like 
I don't. I won't say it falls short, but you kind of think, oh, okay, was that it? Which is a bit of a shame after like after the previous two hours have been so good, but it doesn't really detract from the rest of the movie. It's still a great movie. Yeah, I think you're expecting something way more epic considering who the villain is as well and what he's been set out to do, that he's obviously trying to extort this gold and everything. He's got that mission, but at the same time, he's like killing two birds with one stone because he's gone after McLean um, to avenge the death of his brother. So I think there needed to be something a bit more explosive going on there. I'm guessing you're aware of the alternate ending. I found this out after researching a little bit. So I'm going to go back, as I say, to Wikipedia just to summarise this. So, because I've only, I haven't seen the full clip of it. I've just seen snippets. So an alternative ending to the one shown in the final movie was filmed with Jeremy Irons and Bruce Willis set sometime after the events in New York. It can be found on the special edition DVD. In this version, it is presumed that the robbery succeeds and that McLean was used as the scapegoat for everything that went wrong. He is fired from the NYPD after more than 20 years on the force, and the FBI has even taken away his pension. Nevertheless, he still manages to track Simon using the batch number on the bottle of aspirins, and they meet in a bar in Hungary. In this version, Simon has a double-crossed most of his accomplices, got on the loop to a safe hiding place somewhere in Hungary, and has the gold turned into statuettes of the Empire State Building in order to smuggle it out of the country. But he is still tracked down to his foreign hideaway. McLean is keen to take his problems out on Simon, who he invites to play a game called McLean Says. This involves a form of Russian roulette with a small Chinese rocket launcher that has had the sights removed, meaning it is impossible to determine which end is which. McLean then asks Simon some riddles similar to the ones he's played in New York. When Simon gets the riddle wrong, McLean forces him at gunpoint to fire the launcher, which fires the rocket through Simon killing him. And I quite like mm. that I think that I, I like the idea of it, and I think the reason they changed it, it was because it wasn't die hard enough. Because yeah. I think it, that scene is a bit too intense and intimate, and they were just looking for something bigger than just the two characters. But I really like that. I think that sounds better, in my opinion. Yeah, it's quite a doomy ending as well because McLean's lost his job and he's. You know, he's got really not an awful lot of future. And I think that's probably why that got kicked, to be perfectly mm. honest. Because I guess when you're looking at Die Hard 3 and thinking, how much money is this going to make? Maybe we can do Die Hard 4 after this. Now, if you have McLean disgraced at the end of it, yeah, you could buy some sort of shenanigans, bring him back for Die Hard 4. But you're not painting him as much of a hero at the end of this because they're blaming him for everything that went wrong. So it does feel a slightly darker ending for a Die Hard movie. I like it. I think that's a really great ending. But I understand why they didn't use that, because although it gives you that confrontation between Simon and McLean at the end, his life is ruined, basically. And mm. taking revenge on Simon isn't going to get him his job back. So I think they probably looked at that and thought, you know what, if we're going to do a fourth one, we can't have him in this place at the end of Die Hard 3. So maybe that's why they decided not to use that ending. Good ending, though. I'd prefer it to the one we got now, but I completely understand why studios wouldn't go with it and probably test audiences if they saw that. They'd think, what's going on here? It's moved on. You know, it's taken them ages to find him. You know, you don't get at that instant, oh, yeah, McLean's beating the bad guys at the end. It strings you out a bit. So I guess that 
test audiences probably wouldn't have liked that either. Apart from me, if I'd have been sat in the test audience, I'd have thought, well, I didn't see that coming. That was really good. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely more unexpected. So maybe, yeah, as you say, the test audiences didn't really agree with it. And then that's why the ending that we do get feels slightly rushed, maybe, because yeah. they kind of went back to the drawing board with it. But also there is a prominent character from the Die Hard franchise who doesn't feature in this movie, and that is the character of McLean's wife, Holly, played by uh, Bonnie Bedalia. She declined to return. That's all I could really find out about it. Didn't want to be involved in the third instalment. So the storyline goes that they are separated and they fell out over a phone call and he never called her back. But they kind of try and resolve that at the end a little bit. So he does call her. Maybe they get back together. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, because there is a voice on the phone when he leaves her hanging. But when the voice comes over, my instant reaction was... That isn't her. That doesn't sound like her at all. But, you know, it's one line. It doesn't really affect the dynamic of the movie. I do like the fact that he's grouchy and hungover at the start. It's it's a bit of a difference to the fact that sort of he's, he's a little bit more in control in the first two movies where he's a complete mess in the third one, to the point where you think, is he actually going to manage to get through any of these challenges? Because he just seems a complete shell of himself the first few minutes. But he does kind of rally as the movie goes on with the help of Zeus. There's some nice kind of buddy-buddy stuff going on between the two of them. They go from sort of not liking each other to grudgingly respecting each other to actually having quite a bit of a friendship going by the end because you kind of think if there was something where you know they would meet up again, you'd think they would because by the end they're wisecracking with each other. So you get that classic Hollywood sort of love-hate thing going on between them. No problem with this. I mean, it's a, I mean, it's not even a throwaway action movie because obviously there's like spent some money on it. But you don't want it to stray too far from the template because it's a die-hard movie. You expect certain things within the parameters of a die-hard movie. And you get pretty much all of them in here. Having not revisited 4 or 5 yet, so I can't speak to how I'm going to react when we see 4 or 5 again. But my initial view of the series was after the third one, there's a really big drop-off. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, there's a bit of um, a gap in time as well between them because isn't there 12 years be- yeah. between Die Hard of the Vengeance and then the fourth film? So I can't comment yet, so you'll have to wait for my thoughts on the fourth and fifth one, which they'll be coming soon, don't worry about that. But going back to Die Hard with a Vengeance, it was the highest grossing movie of 1995, which is pretty incredible, especially for a third film. I'm guessing it was quite highly anticipated because there hadn't been a Die Hard movie in five years. And of course, the first two were very popular. It was then released on VHS in December 95, DVD in March of 1999 re-released on DVD in uh, 2005 and 2007, and then the Blu-ray came out in 2007 and again in 2013, which I'm guessing was when the complete box set of all five films came out. It had a budget of $90 million, but went on to gross $366.1 million. And by most of the fans, it is considered to be the best Die Hard sequel. Now, we will be ranking... All of them once we've watched all of them and uh, reviewed them individually so look out for that for me i thoroughly enjoyed this as i've said i think it's a good movie because it does 
something different but keeps the diehard spirit alive at the same time so it doesn't stray too far as you say from the template and I really like the fact that this time around he had someone to bounce off so he wasn't just completely going solo going through this ordeal so I think that kind of makes it a bit different and opens it up and again um, Bruce Willis and Samuel Jackson great chemistry between them they make it really fun it's it's you know it's very much like a dark movie in some ways but then in other ways it's very humorous it just gets the balance right with it so for me I really enjoyed this it's not as good as the first one in my opinion I think that's a very hard one to top but it's a very very much worthy sequel and if they stopped at these three films, this would have been a pretty solid franchise. So <laughs> not, I have no, I don't have high hopes for the other two. Well, you never know. I mean, I might have a bit of a 180 on, on Die Hard 4 and 5, and I might see something in them this time. So it was part of the first DVD I ever got. Um, it was a Region 1 box set, and it was the first three movies in a special edition box set. You know, they they were part of the very first films I owned on DVD, and I still have the box set here. It's a really cool Region 1 set. So that's how much of a fan I was of the Die Hard movies, because it was like, as soon as they were out, as soon as I got a DVD player, it was like, right, what am I going to get first? Oh, I'll get the Die Hard movies. And it was like, well, you can't get them in the UK. It's right, I'll get them from the States then, in that case. <laughs> so, so that's how much of a Die Hard fan I was. We'll see what happens when we come to the sec- next uh, two in the, in, in the Die Hard franchise. But yeah, you can't knock the first three in this franchise because the quality is pretty much there throughout. And I think certainly time has been kind to the first three, maybe not as kind to the next two. But uh, but yeah, I really enjoyed revisiting this again. As you say, it's great to see Bruce Willis and Samuel L. Jackson bounce off each other on the screen. They are perfect as a double act in this. I don't think... I could have imagined anybody else. I mean, I was saying like Lawrence Fishburne, he'd have been good, but would he have been as good as Samuel Jackson? No, I don't think he would have done because the two of them look like they're having a real blast filming this as well, which kind of comes across on the screen. They do seem to be really saying all these pithy lines at each other as well. The scripting's pretty good. Now, I don't know how much ad-libbing they were allowed to do. I suspect it was quite a bit, to be honest, knowing what the two of them play like on screen. I can't really knock Die Hard 3 apart from that ending and we kind of we've gone into that as an action movie it's great as an action sequel it's far better than it's got any right to be as the third movie in a franchise if you look at something like and I'm going to probably get some stick for this Matrix Revolutions god that stinks as a third movie in the franchise and I know what it's trying to do and I know that people have got their take on Matrix Revolution saying it's kind of one of the most transgressive, and then it's like, no, no, it's just, it's rubbish. It's rubbish, the third Matrix movie. The fourth one's pretty good, the third one's rubbish. So it's uh, good for Die Hard that um, it has a strong third instalment in that way. <laughs> Interestingly as well, it was rated 15 in the UK. I believe the other two were 18, so I'm not really sure what the decision was to drop the rating, whether to get more teenagers in the audience. Yeah, probably. <laughs> Yeah, I think yeah. widen the scope of it out a bit as well. It's not particularly violent. There's a couple of bloodthirsty moments, but it doesn't have that kind of heightened sense of bloodshed that the other two have in places. It's toned down a bit, and the focus is more on the mystery this time. Not to say there isn't any action in it, because there is, but 
I think there's less moments that make you cringe in this one and even the bit where sam phillips is slashing the guy you don't see an awful lot of blood in it it's just the act of it which seems nasty but you don't get that kind of thing where the guy gets his throat slashed in the back of the truck in die hard too i mean that's horrible you don't get anything on that level in die hard with a vengeance it's taken slightly less seriously even though as you say the subject matter can get quite dark because there's a subplot about uh, a school possibly getting bombed but even that is done in a way that's not going to be particularly offensive and it's played for the thrills and you kind of lulled into the sort of secure feeling that you know they're not going to blow a building full of kids up and and they don't i suppose that can cut quite close to the bone but i think you're safe in the knowledge to know that john mcclain will save the day yeah and especially watching it now when you know there are two more films. Like, <laughs> so, exactly, yeah. yeah. So you kind of know that he's going to come through this. So um, on IMDb, it has a 7.6 out of 10 rating. And then on Rotten Tomatoes, a 59% tomato meter, which I think is a bit low for this film, and an 83% audience score. Interesting that the critics' side of it is 59%. I'm guessing they thought it was a bit of like the law of diminishing returns and thought, oh, not another diehard movie. But on its merits, it's a pretty decent action movie. I think if you're going to compare it to the first one, it's on a hiding to nothing because you could say, oh, it's not as good as the first Die Hard movie. Well, pretty much nothing is good as the first Die Hard movie. So it's a bit of a false comparison. Just take it on its merits and just say, right, okay, it's the third in a series of adventures. As an action movie, does it hold up? Yes, it does. Absolutely. I had a blast with it. And I think watching these films is just giving me a new appreciation for the action movies of the 80s and 90s. Uh, I used to love watching movies of this ilk when I was younger, but I think because it's been so long, I think as an adult now, I can really appreciate them and enjoy them for what they are. Also, you do get yippee motherfucker. You have to wait a long time to get yippee motherfucker in this movie, but it does appear. Yes, it does. It wouldn't be a diehard film without it. Also, you get to find out who the 21st president of the United States was. But I'm not going to tell you that. You're going to have to watch the movie to find out. Yeah, just in case you get it on a quiz somewhere. I do wish we could chat longer. And that's it for episode 58 of the HD Movie Podcast. As always, thank you for listening. And if you enjoyed this episode and would like to check us out on social media, we are on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at HD Movie Podcast. In episode 59, well, we're approaching Mother's Day here in the UK, so we're going to have a bit of a Mother's Day episode. Now, initially, we were thinking about doing the actual film called Mother's Day, but we thought we couldn't put either of us through that, because if you know Mother's Day, you'll know what a dreadful piece of cack it is. So we've decided to pick something a little less challenging. So for our Mother's Day special, we are going to be looking at the 2016 raucous mother comedy, Bad Moms. Excellent. It also has Catherine Hahn in it, so I shall be trying to keep my Catherine Hahn worship down to a minimum. Let's see if that pans out. Tune in and find out next time. Till then, stay safe everybody. We'll see you soon. The HD Movie Podcast is presented by Hayley Alice Roberts and Darren Gaskell. Its music is written and performed by Mitch Bay. You can find the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, 
Amazon Music, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, Player FM, Listen Notes and Podbean. <laughs>